0: Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and as you do so, I felt like Zach's announcement was missing one helpful point about the town hall, and that is we're not doing it tonight because of the Super Bowl, but we're also not doing it next Sunday night, gentlemen, because it's Valentine's Day. So just throwing that out, no charge for that one, uh, you can stop now and put that on your calendar if it's not already there. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word now. It is your word and we need to hear your word. So would you help us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Give us insight and understanding. Give us attentiveness, but more than anything, do the work to penetrate into our hearts the life-changing work of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in Revelation chapter 2, we begin. Revelation 1 is really kind of an introduction. We begin in Revelation chapter 2, these addresses to the seven churches. We know that's who this letter is addressed to, the seven churches in Asia. And now we begin to see the first of the seven specific messages to the churches. And in each of these addresses, not all of them, but in several of them, there are lines or phrases or verses that we find familiar. But we don't always, well, I, I won't say we, I'll say me, don't always remember the context of, you've lost your first love. And yet we come to Revelation, ah, oh, this is this is where it is. It's it's kind of a, a sobering word. If you grew up with the King James, thou hast left thy first love. It may sound more familiar to you. Well, I couldn't help but think of the Righteous Brothers song, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Uh, because it's you know, it's not it's before my time, but it's been in so many movies that you know we yes, it's before my time. Um, <laughs> to remind some of you. But uh, it's been in enough movies. We know the message of the song, right? I mean, it's a love that's grown cold, and the singer laments this love that has faded. But as I studied the passage, I realized it was more than just this, and a different song came to my mind. I know you'll be so surprised from where this song comes from. Fiddler on the Roof, the song Do You Love Me? And if you remember, if you've ever seen the play or movie or you're familiar with the storyline, you know that uh, it centers around Tevi and Golda, the husband and wife, and one of the central themes of the story is they're facing the reality that their daughters, they have five daughters, they're getting married. And Tevi and Golda's marriage had been arranged. They hadn't met each other until their wedding day, but the world is changing around them. And now Hoddle, their oldest, wants to be married to the man of her choice. She's fallen in love with this man, and and, and and they want to choose to get married. And so there's this this great just strife in their lives. You know the story. Anyway, the scene of the question that comes up then for Tevia as he comes to Golda is, you know, do you love me? Golda's response, I mean, it's humorous when you watch it. If you haven't, you can go on YouTube and see it. Uh, but my favorite response of hers was her initial response where she said, Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Well, for 25 years, they hadn't seemed to give it much thought. But Golda's response is simply this. I, I've done my duty. I've done what I'm supposed to do. What's love got to do with it in a sense? Well, much like Tevi and Golda, the church at Ephesus is commended for some wonderful things. They were certainly dutiful. As we begin reading this, we see that they've remained strong. They've stood strong. They've been persistent. They've patiently endured. But love is missing. And when love is missing, all of our duties become just that. Just duties. I'm reminded of another well-known illustration uh, from the book Desiring God by John Piper in which he talks about uh, this notion. I don't think it really happened, although he tells it from the first person. But he says, suppose I come home to my wife uh, on an anniversary bringing flowers. and She comes to the door and greets me and is so excited and thankful to receive these. And at that point, suppose I hold up my hand and say, matter-of-factly, don't mention it. It's my duty. What happens? Is not the exercise of duty a noble thing? Do we not honor those who dutifully serve? Not much. Not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. If I am not moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person, the roses do not honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They are a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection. All I can muster is a calculated expression of marital duty. Here's the way Edmund John Cornell puts it. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this. Unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. You understand the problem here. It is possible for us to do things correctly and still lack love. It is possible for us to do things correctly and lack love. Another passage of Scripture come to mind, Paul's 1 Corinthians 13, It's read at so many weddings and other occasions of romance, but often not the first part. This is how he starts it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am not a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. That's what he says he is. If he has all these things, he he goes off on this kind of hyperbolic, you know, just description of all these things that are beyond ability. It says even if I do all of these things, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Here, the church of Ephesus praised for their work, their toil, their patient endurance, their stand for the truth against false teachers—all incredibly God honoring things. And yet Jesus says, but this I have against you, your love has grown cold. Is he speaking of their love for him or their love for others? If you notice, he doesn't specify. And the reason is, is because they're both tied together. We can't separate them as believers. They're inseparably linked. John writes in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so when our love for God grows cold, we will certainly struggle to love others. And if we struggle to love others, we can see that our love for God has grown cold. One more thing that I want us to keep in mind as we look through these addresses to the seven churches is these are not seven distinct letters. Uh, this is one letter, but it's addressed to these seven churches. And as I've described before, it was written on a scroll and its intention was to be passed around to be read in all the churches. And so all of the churches would have benefited from each of the messages. And the reason I point this out, I know we've talked about this some already, uh, that this is not only for these seven churches, but it's really for the church throughout time and history. It's for every church. It's for us. Is because as we read these, are we not convicted of some of the very things that we see these churches face? Does not some of this stuff resonate with us? Does it not describe our own time, our own situation, our own struggles? And so there are four components that we see in, in each of the messages uh, that we can relate to. First, there are words of affirmation, words of encouragement. We see these clearly where Jesus praises them for their toil, their labor, their patient endurance. And we can certainly draw encouragement from that when we do likewise. We should also be able to l- relate to the words of correction. Here, the word of correction you've lost your first love. We need to ask ourselves, where have we, how have we lost our first love? There are words of warning and judgment in each of these addresses. We need to pay attention to warnings and judgment. And there are also promises which are applicable to us today. We need to take hold of these promises as we see at the end, the promise to eat of the tree of life. And so these addresses then are not just about seven churches way back in history, but they're, they're also for us today. We need to weigh our own situation against this. And so as we look at this message this morning... Let's continue to ask ourselves in our hearts, have we lost our first love? Notice in verse 1, the message is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? We've looked already at just, it was briefly at the end of last week. I, if you haven't picked up yet, uh, the, the fact that these sermons, are they've gotten a little bit longer. I'm speaking a little bit faster. They're a little more packed in. It's, it's just because there's so much. Uh, I've never studied so much during the week. And there's a million more things that we could look at and talk about and 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 uncover. And so sometimes if you feel like I've rushed over something, my intention is often, I know we're going to get to it and we'll come back to it. Uh, so just keep that in mind. And so I want to come back to this idea of, were, were these, uh, the angel, was this a heavenly being? Was this an earthly minister? I've mentioned that the the word could be translated, it means messenger, but it is angelos, it is the word for angel in Greek, and so uh, some land on the side that this is the address to the minister in the church of these seven churches, where others uh, hold that it is, it is truly a heavenly being. My point last week, and I'll make it again today, is don't make too much out of either, because that's our, our tendency. The emphasis is not on the angel itself, the messenger itself, whoever this is. The emphasis is on the one who holds the seven stars or the seven angels in his hand. The fact that Christ holds the church and its leaders or those who minister, whether they're heavenly beings or earthly beings in our midst, God holds his church in his hand. But that said, I am convinced that this is a heavenly being. And I didn't tell Zach before this morning that I was going to say this, and yet his opening... This morning describes where why part of the reason of why I come down on that point. That there is a spiritual reality that we don't have eyes to see. But scripture talks about over and over again. And there seems to be some representation in the heavenlies of our situation. Paul describes this in Ephesians 2. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So we have been seated. It's, it's present tense. This is some of that now and not yet tension where we there is a reality that we cannot see, but we are firmly established in the heavenlies. You also notice some of the, the structure in the grammar. It, he says to the angel right. And if you notice from the beginning when the letter is opened that there is a, a transmission uh, from, from, from Jesus to an angel to John. And so there seems to be this, this, there's a heavenly being that's in this, in, intermixed in this arrangement here. Uh, Again, we don't make too much of this. The emphasis, though, either way, is that Christ holds His church. We are firmly established in Him. Nothing can shake us from this. Our position as Christ's bride is firmly fixed in Him. He holds His church in His hand, and He is present among us. He walks among the lampstands. This should be great comfort to us as believers... To know that Jesus is among us. That He is intimately aware of all of our details. And not just on a personal, individual level, but He knows our church. He knows Christ the King. He knows what we're facing. He knows what we're up against. He knows tension and conflicts. He knows struggles and hurts. He knows sickness. He knows all that we deal with. He knows what the future is. And He cares for us. and he, He's with us. He's promised to never leave us. He's also working to prepare us as his bride for his return. And so we should be comforted. This awareness that he has of us is, is, is shown even further in verse 2. He says, I know. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I joke about cross-stitching stuff on your pillows, but there's some things that just stand out. And I feel like a lot of times when we struggle in life, we feel like nobody knows. Jesus says to you today, I know. When no one else knows what you're dealing with, what you've faced, what you've gone through, what people have done to you, what people have taken from you, what you've experienced, Jesus says, I know. I know. The congregation in Ephesus is one that we know quite a bit about compared to some of the other churches. Uh, Ephesus gets a lot of uh, face time, so to speak, in the scriptures. Paul planted the church most likely, at least Acts 18 implies that he did when he went to Ephesus, went into the synagogue, that this was the beginning of that church. He came back to it later, spent three years there on his third missionary journey serving. So the church enjoyed the Apostle Paul uh, pouring into its existence he sent Timothy to this church. He installed him as pastor of this church. He wrote not only the letter of Ephesians to this body, but he wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy while he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. And so keep this in mind the next time you read those books of the connection here in Revelation of how, what they would one day face. This is, this is a little further down in history. Um, We also know that uh, John's epistles would have circulated through this. John's epistles were all addressed to the churches in Asia, so they would have come through the church in Ephesus as well. Ephesus was a large city. It was situated on a harbor. It enjoyed a lot of traffic, not only because of the trade from the harbor uh, and and its geographical situation, but also because of pagan worship. There was a large temple, the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people came to this, and we don't need to go into a lot of detail about the pagan practices of this time to know that it was ripe with immorality. And so this is the context of this church. In fact, there was a a philosopher at this time, Heraclitus. He was known as the weeping philosopher, and he wrote, no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. This is what the church was facing. This is what the congregation was dealing with, whom Jesus now praises for their toil and patient endurance, refusing to bear with those who are evil, standing strong for the name of Jesus. These are incredibly encouraging words when we understand the context, when we understand what they were dealing with, what they were up against, that these words are designed by Jesus to strengthen his church, that they would stay strong. Now, we may not be able to relate to pagan temple worship, but we can certainly relate to a culture that calls evil good and good evil, a culture that is crumbling. Consider our own modern context and all of the things that we're facing. Dennis Johnson writes, "...the Ephesians refused to tolerate counterfeit apostles and other purveyors of deceit. The church's intolerance was as politically correct in the midst of ancient pluralism as it would be today." Can we connect with that? The Ephesians, though, were committed to the truth of the gospel. And they were staying strong in the fight, firmly grounded in the word of God. And so, for many of us, we might read that and say, so what's wrong? What could be wrong? If we're committed to the truth, what could ever go wrong? Well, Jesus shows us exactly what can go wrong even when we're committed to to the truth, even when we're standing strong. Here's the word of correction in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. We've already talked about, was this, you know, about their love for Jesus growing cold, their love for one another. It's not specified, but the two are tied together. We can't really separate them. Our failure to love others stems from a failure to love God. And if we grow cold in our love for God, we will truly fail to love others. But you may wonder how does this happen in a church that is so committed to the truth? Well, one of the ways that it can happen is when we allow our doctrine or our ministry to become an idol. How can such good things become an idol? But they can. And we see evidence of this in our own day and time. How many pastors and teachers have we witnessed disqualify themselves from ministry, men who have faithfully taught the truth and yet they have allowed their doctrine to become disconnected from the way they live their lives. Things done in secret. A pastor faithfully preaches the word and yet fails to care for his family or worse, treats them harshly and unkindly behind closed doors. An evangelist boldly proclaims the gospel, calls many to saving faith, and yet is involved secretly in sexual sin. A missionary serves, and yet uses his power and resources to take advantage of the very people he's been entrusted to serve. All of these things we know of examples of, and if you don't, there are examples in just in our recent time of these very things happening, where doctrine or ministry or both in some cases become an idol. They become the means, the, 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 the end and the means. Rather than, or they become the end rather than the means. They become what we, what we love more than Christ. And yet this doesn't just happen among leaders, does it? It can happen to any of us. Any of us can faithfully serve. Or serve. We, we can come to church every week and yet go out and live counterfeit lives the other six days. We can serve and yet fail to care for the needs of those whom God has put in our path. We can work in the nursery, attend weekly Bible studies, and yet be selfish, harbor hatred in our hearts, steal from our workplace, mistreat our spouse or our children. We could go on and on and on with the list. And Paul says when we do this, we're a clanging symbol. It's not just the bad stuff, too. We can add good stuff in here. Martha did that, right? She forgot the one thing needed, Jesus said. And yet, look, when Jesus corrects them, He doesn't just say, you've lost your first love, try harder. He gives them instruction how to change. And the instruction is not try harder. The instruction is the gospel. That's our only hope. I mean, if you've ever tried the try harder approach, you know how frustrating and how uh, just the endless cycle of trying over and over is. So he comes to them with gospel hope in verse five, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. now, if you didn't know the gospel, that would sound like try harder wouldn't it? but we know we know what Jesus is saying here. remember it is a call that we hear over and over and over in scripture remember, remember from where you have fallen remember why because we're you're, you're prone to forget I'm prone to forget we we forget. We start to think that we've earned it, that God's lucky to have us on his side, that we've contributed to the teamwork. We forget from where we've fallen. And Jesus says, Remember. Remember that while you were sinners, I came to die for you. You have been saved by grace, not by works, lest any of you boast. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You see, remembering the gospel is transformative in our lives because we see that it's not about our doing, but about what has been done for us in Christ. And this is so much a discipline of our mind that when we face temptation, whether it's some sinful thing or whether it's just even the temptation to fear, unhealthily, you know, when we face things, we we, we watch the news, we watch what's happening, and things are stirred up in our hearts. Remember the gospel. Remember who holds you in his hand. And because of this, because of this love that God has shown you in Christ, then you're able to love others. So remember. The second thing is repent. Repentance is a part of the gospel. It is a turning from sin. And so often we think of repentance as this one-time act that we did way, way, way back when, when we became believers, when God saved us. But repentance is a daily, if not moment by moment discipline, a practice to turn from sin, hate our sin, leave it behind and turn from it. Anybody mastered that? <laughs> no, that's why it's an ongoing discipline, turning from our sin. So we remember we repent. And then he says, return, do the works you did at first. A call to go back to the basics. A call again to remember the gospel. Remember our first love. Return to the delightful obedience of the one who has saved us while we were yet sinners. Do you remember that fervor? Do you remember that joy when God saved you? Now, if that sounds too much like a theological answer or a Sunday school answer, let's put it in more practical terms. If you have a romantic relationship that you feel has grown cold, what do you do? What do you do? You remember. You repent, you turn from the cold acts. You go back to the basics, don't you? What is, you know, what happens when you pull out the wedding album? You know, you look at the pictures or the wedding video. What happens when you you go back to see the uh, uh, the, the the pictures? I I, I came across this uh, audio files cleaning up some stuff on my desktop on my computer this week, and I did it wasn't named uh, anything specific, so I clicked to listen. And where the player was, it was a, a Christmas Eve, one of our Christmas Eve services, and I was using the illustration of when I took Leslie to meet my parents for the first time, and my dad took a picture of us and he mailed me the picture a couple weeks later, and I looked at the picture, I saw this dumb, happy grin on my face. I don't think that was a mistake, because that's what we do, right? We go back, and we look at that, and we're like, <laughs> I was done, I was cooked, you know? Uh, we remember, we focus our time and attention. We Maybe we give gifts or write notes, but we make the relationship a priority. We go back to the basics. You return to what you did when you first fell in love. The only difference here is that in our relationship with God, the coldness is never on His part, it's always on ours. He never grows cold in His love for us. And I think this is the most captivating aspect of this. Don't turn this into a duty. But come back to the reality of a God who adores you, who sent his only son to die for you, who rejoices over you with singing, who loves you with an endless love, who has set things in such a way that nothing can separate you from his love, even the things that you do and think and feel. That is your God who loves you. Remember that. Come back to that. And then you can see that we love only because He first loved us. Well, following the rebuke, the instruction to repent, Jesus then comes and gives a warning. He says that if you don't, I will come and remove the lampstand. Do you hear how sobering that message is? What Jesus is in fact saying is that I will remove your existence as a local congregation if you don't repent from this. There is a reality that no local church is permanent in its own efforts. And yet many churches attempt to function this way. It's not the ones who have abandoned the gospel. You, you get why they crumble, right? I mean, it makes sense why churches like that would either crumble or become about something else that has nothing to do with the gospel with the ones who have stayed strong in the truth but have failed to love. For the sake of time, I won't tell the story this morning, but I've told pieces of it before. A church tremendously large with an incredible impact and footprint in the Atlanta area, but fell into the sin of racism and is today a shell of a church barely in existence. That story can be told over and over again. I remember being in London. And seeing the buildings of churches. And, and the, the pastor who took us around told us, you know, this used to be, Spurgeon <clears throat> preached in that church once. I and mean, these were churches that heralded the truth. And they were theaters and nightclubs and Hindu worship centers. Why? Because our permanence is not in, in our programs and our strategies. We have to stay committed not only to the truth. We have to stay committed to the person of Jesus. We have to continue to love Jesus. And as we love Him, the fruit of that is that we love others. We start dividing that out. We risk the judgment that the Ephesian church faced. And folks, go to Ephesus today. There's no church there. But know this, that our hope is not in our own existence or the existence of the Ephesian church. Our hope is in the one who holds the seven stars in His hands. He walks among the lampstands, and He will accomplish His perfect will in all of those things. We are called, while it is called today, we're called to fan the flame of our love for Him, and as we do that, our love for others. In verse 6, Jesus commends them again this time for hating the work of specific false teachers, the Nicolaitans. We're going to come back to that when we get to Pergamum. It's expanded a little bit more there, and for the sake of time, we'll we'll look more at that. But it's just, again, the same commendation of standing strong against false teaching. As we come to the last verse, verse 7, this is a sweet promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Notice that we are called. He who has an ear, let him hear. That's you know like the, the, the recent thing, you know, who has two thumbs, you know, this guy or where I don't even know how to do it right, but you know, all all the, the youngsters do it. Hey, it's who has two ears? All right, we 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 have ears? You need to listen. All of us need to listen to this. This is not just for the the, the seven churches. This is not just for the Ephesian church. This is for us. And it's not just to listen to the promise that's given in verse 7. It's to listen to the whole exhortation. How have we grown cold? How have we uh, failed to love others? How have we failed to love God? Have we become too focused on our doctrine that we've neglected our doctrine lived out? In love, Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch your life and doctrine is another way to put that, right? Not just your doctrine, like how you're teaching, what you're teaching, but your life and your doctrine that you can't separate those two. Watch how you're living. What are you doing? Seven days a week, how are you living your life? How we're loving others, as well as what we believe. Guard the trust. The two must not be divided. Have we become too inward focused as a church so that we neglect the needs of others and think only about our own wants and needs? Do we love Jesus or do we love the things that we want him to give us? Do we love our idea of church or are we committed to following him however he leads? It is possible for us to love our church so much the way that it is that we could neglect sharing the hope of the gospel with others because it might force us to change. We don't want to do that. The love of Christ compels us to be willing to do whatever He calls us to do. And that's not just true of us as individuals. I think we recognize that as individuals. Like, Lord, have your own way, right? You know, we sing. But what about us as a church? Are we willing to say that as a church? That what we would do collectively to proclaim His name? We could add more questions to this. But may we prayerfully just consider these things maybe even in the coming week, come back and read these seven verses that we could ask ourselves, how can we live out the love of God right here where we're planted? We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know where the Lord will take us the next day. But today, right now, this is where the Lord has us. He's brought us here to be a part of Christ the King. How does He intend to use us? And may that love continue to compel us, not only to cling to the truth, but to display that truth in the lavish love like that which has been shown to us. The result is that we might eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It takes us all the way back to Eden. The way things are supposed to be, and this is what we all long for. The way things are supposed to be, all is made right. True peace, no tears, no threats, no fears, and perfect communion with our Creator. It is only to the one who conquers or who overcomes That the promise is made. What does that look like? Let me finish with this. This is a, a pastoral word from one of John's letters in which he beautifully ties together the love of God and its motivation in our lives to patiently endure in the truth and to love others as we do so. John writes Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? His commandments are not burdensome. This is not a message to try harder. What has overcome the world? It's our faith the object of our faith. We're trusting in Christ alone. And so if he were to come and ask us today, do you love me? Would we respond? For 25 years I've attended the church, read my Bible, said my prayers, given a tithe and volunteered. Or would we look at his nail-scarred hands and fall on our faces in gratitude and say, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. We do thank You, Lord. We thank You that we have been cleansed, bought back from death. We thank you that we are yours not because of anything that we've done but because of your mercy demonstrated to us in Christ. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, we confess that we there's certainly ways that we have we've grown cold. We need to see what those things are. Lord, would you show us as we go through this week, would you bring your word back through our minds and hearts and would you reveal to us and show us how we need to remember to repent and to return to the things that we did at first? Would you draw us back to that life-giving hope of the gospel? And it's not about our performance or our doing, but it's about the one who has done all of these things. Would that love demonstrate to us in the gospel and transform us, that we'd actually live differently, that we would live as unto you, giving of ourselves in love toward others. Lord, we confess only you can do this in our lives. We're unable to do it. We're we're navel gazers. We're so self-centered. We're going to get out of here and think of all the things that we have to do, want to do, need to do. Lord, only you can reorient our hearts. And we're going to need help this afternoon. We're going to need help again tomorrow and the day after the day after until you come back. And so would you work in our lives this gospel remembrance Would you lead us to repentance by your mercy again and again and again and bring us back to do the things, that delightful obedience that we did in the beginning because of your love for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.